Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Have I told you you're not going to like this already? Yeah, I think I said that already. Sometimes you've got to eat your vegetables, folks. You know what I'm saying? may not be what we like, but I think it may be what we need. Chapter 19 of Matthew, starting with verse 28. Jesus is replying to something that has been said here by Peter. This is all just after another incident, which I'll reference in just a second. But the words of Jesus are this. I assure you that when the world is made new and the Son of Man sits upon his glorious throne, you who have been my followers will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. I want to put a spotlight on that for you to go home and do your own research on. There's much to be learned from that verse. Verse 30, but many who are the greatest now will be least important then. And those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy and infallible word. Amen? Indeed, a perplexing passage. Verse 30, the last verse we just read, speaks of a kingdom where it seems, at least at face value, to refer to the reversal of an order of things that are generally sought and accepted in this world. If you're taking notes and you like titles, sometimes I do that, sometimes I don't. I'm calling this the great reversal, the great reversal. Everything that we're going to talk about today, I understand going in, and I'm asking you to understand going in, it is counterintuitive. It is not natural to us. It's counterintuitive. But in other words, what this passage is telling us yeah, what Jesus, in his own words, are, are, is telling us is that when we get to heaven, a lot of things are just going to be turned upside down. People that we didn't esteem, we're going to find out that God did. And the people that we do esteem, we're going to find out that God didn't. Everything will be brought into its rightful order Every heart will be rewarded according to the diligence of its service to God. It's going to be an amazing day and quite a day of discovery. It is with um, somewhat of a chuckle in my heart combined with at the same time a fear of God when I think about that day when we get to heaven and we're all sitting in heaven's waiting room you know, there's no time anymore, so a million years will seem like 30 seconds. We're there for eternity. You don't, you don't get hungry. You don't get tired. You don't sigh. You don't cry. And we're, we're waiting now uh, for the rewards to be given to the righteous. You know, Jesus did say that some will rule 10 cities. That's found in Luke 19, 17. There will be all kinds of things that are given for us to do in eternity. I promise you folks, you're not going to be bored. If you've been worried about that, you're not going to be bored. And, but suddenly, the list with the rewards is going to be brought out. And here we go. I want to give you a little tip or a little recommendation or maybe a secret. Sit in the back of the room on that day, okay? Because it will be a little less embarrassing there. Don't sit in the front because it might become real obvious when your name hasn't been called for 10,000 years, okay? 
suddenly names are being called. People are receiving rewards. Mary Johnson. And all the angels start waving their wings. And heavenly beings are clapping and everyone is looking around. Mary Johnson. Who's that? Well, I can tell you, Mary Johnson, she was that little lady in the midst of a country church way out in the boonies somewhere that every Sunday she brought a glass of water or a bottle of water and set it on the pulpit. And every week she made sure the flowers were set just right in the sanctuary. Maybe she was at the door greeting people or handing out bulletins for the week. And we didn't necessarily think that much of it, did we? We, we didn't esteem her as having achieved the pinnacle of success. But can I just remind you all today, God's ways are not our ways. And his thoughts are not our thoughts. Is there an amen in the house? Just because I said you weren't going to like it doesn't mean you can't talk to me, okay? Names will be called. Names that you don't know. Names that I don't know. Names from this church will be called that maybe some have never even heard of. What a day it's going to be. And many who are first now will be last then. And many who are last now are going to be first. I can tell you right now that if you want to have fellowship with me on that day, you're going to have to go to the back door because that's, I've already made up my mind that's where I'm going to be. I've made up my mind on that day I'm going to be holding the door for many of the ushers in Bethesda Church from the last 43 years. I'm going to be holding the door for those who have cleaned this church over and over again when nobody saw it. I'm going to be holding the door for those who volunteer to clean the bathrooms uh, all over this house. And sometimes it's not a pleasant task. I'm going to be holding the door for people who are in kids' ministry right now taking care of your children so that you can hear the word of the Lord today. I'm going to be holding the door for those who are in preschool and the nursery taking care of your babies. It's a rightful thing within the construct of the kingdom of God. Let the church say, many who are first now are going to be last then, and many who are last are going to be first, and it is right in the sight of God. Now, this statement that Jesus makes about the last being first, first being last, He's made it immediately following an interaction with a very religious young man uh, just, just earlier in the chapter. We know him as the rich young ruler. He's called that because he was. He was rich, he was young, and he was a ruler. Now, I have a, an unusual imagination about things like this. I, I, every time I read this, I see him making a grand entrance. I see a young guy. He's rich. Uh, he's a ruler. I almost see him sliding across the stage in a dramatic fashion on his knees to announce that he's here. And he says, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And it would almost appear that he was uh, expecting uh, the affirmation of a commendation from Jesus instead of a condemnation. And Jesus says, well, um, you know the commandments. Don't murder. Don't uh, commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. And I can almost hear, uh, this is inferred from Scripture, some of it. I hear the young man go, yeah, 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 yeah. I've got, I got all that. All these things, I've done them since my youth. So are there any other boxes I need to check? What, what is it that I, that I lack? You see, his religion had helped him to obtain what those of us in this world always 
strive for. And he was a very religious young man. But his religion, listen to me, had brought him to a place where he had this world's wealth, he had this world's status, and he had this world's power. Will you listen real carefully when I tell you this? When religion loses touch with God, that's what it always offers you, wealth, status, and power. Hmm. In 1 Samuel 17, King Saul was leading the nation of Israel in a battle. You certainly know the story. Suddenly they faced something that was too strong and too big for them, much as we are facing today in our world as the church of the Lord Jesus. We're facing a Goliath, folks, in our own generation, just as they were in theirs. And here comes this threatening voice. You will serve us. You will serve us. We are stronger than you. You will not defeat us. Every morning, this voice is rising up, and the whole army is trembling before this threatening voice that's being raised up, boasting of its size, boasting of its strength, boasting of its power. When all of a sudden, in walks David, just a boy, comes walking into the camp, and he starts asking, um, why is nobody fighting this guy? Why, why, why is everybody kind of cowering, cowering back? And his brothers were there and probably trying to get him to shut up and calm down. He's, you know, he's the, the, the young one of the group. And his brothers were, though, were pricked in their conscience by his inquiries because not one of them had the courage to go down and fight this giant. So David keeps asking, kind of an you know, annoying little brother thing he's doing. He keeps saying, so, so who's going to do something? And what about, what about that? What's going to be done? 1 Samuel 17, 25, some of the men of Israel said, have you seen this giant? The men asked. He comes out each day to defy Israel. The king has offered this huge reward to anyone who kills him. There's the wealth. He will give that man one of his daughters for a wife. There's the status. And the man's entire family will be exempted from paying taxes. There's the power. When religion departs from the presence of God, in the power of God, all it can offer you is wealth, status, and power. The problem is we love it. If you are listening, Bethesda, to any voice that is offering you that in God's name, you are listening to a voice that has lost touch with the genuine power of God. Oh, I wish you were hearing me today. I know of a pastor who received a phone call one morning from a new Christian, young Christian brother. The young man was all excited. He said, Pastor, I've been in prayer this morning, and God's confirmed in my heart. The Lord told me that I am destined for greatness. The pastor, the wise pastor said, I am so glad to hear that because just yesterday our janitor resigned. Just yesterday. Oh, that is great news. And until we can hire somebody, we need someone to wash the floor of the church after service. The t your timing is perfect. The young man said, uh, uh, Pastor, that's really not exactly what I had in mind. I understand it probably isn't what the young man had in mind. But it's not a far stretch for me to believe that is exactly what God had in mind.
because God's view of greatness and our view of greatness are not the same thing. Did you know that's true? In the Gospel of Luke chapter 22, we find a situation which is uh, speaking of the disciples of Jesus. Uh, the 24th chapter, tw- 20, 22nd chapter of Luke, 24th verse. The disciples. Then they began to argue among themselves about who would be the greatest among them. Now, when you poke around on this word, it's, it's, it's more than, some, some versions, uh, I think, use the word dispute. But it really, what it really is, it's a heated argument. It's, it's an argument with a little fire behind it, is what it is. Um, and I just got to say, can you imagine the disciples of Jesus walking down the road saying, I'm going to be greater than you. No, I'm going to be greater than you. Where do you see the miracles I'm going to perform? I'm going to leave you in the dust, man. Wait until you see the crowds are going to hear me preach. I mean, seriously? Verse 25, Jesus told them, In this world, the kings and great men lord it over their people, and yet they are called friends of the people. But among you it will be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like a servant. In other words, Jesus was teaching that in his kingdom, which by the way will outlast all of the kingdoms of this world, in his kingdom, eternal power, everlasting wealth, and true status, you want to know where it's found? It's found at the bottom of what this world offers, not at the top. Man, that's hard to compute. It's simply another way of saying this, in God's kingdom, the way up is down. It makes no sense to us, but it's what Scripture is teaching us. It's what the Lord Jesus himself modeled and is teaching us today. If you want to be great, find the lowest place. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, find the lowest task. But do it before God with all of your heart, and you will be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Find your way, please, with me to John chapter 13. I know I'm skipping around a bit. In the 13th chapter of the Gospel of John, we find a phenomenal interaction where Jesus is teaching his disciples a certain way of thinking. It's going to give them the ability to literally bring the gospel into all of the known world. He's showing them where power is found. And let me take the reverse of it. He's letting them know it is not found in the wealth of this world. It is not found in the status of this world. It is not found in the power of this world. And he's showing them something that is absolute foolishness to those who have a carnal mind and a carnal heart. It makes no sense whatsoever. It is absolutely ludicrous to them. He's showing them something that those outside the kingdom of God cannot see and they don't consider it to be powerful. And and in our case, if we're going to see a spiritual awakening church in our generation, the reproach of this kind of thinking Jesus is teaching has got to be rolled away from us once again. Even in times of revival, 
in times of spiritual renewal, where God comes and gently rend our hearts, or it may be Yom Kippur, where we're repenting and, and our hearts are open and malleable and soft before the Lord, and God deals with things. You know what can easily happen? The spirit of the age in which we live, you get up in the morning and you live in a real world that is counterintuitive to that. And if we're not careful, what will happen is that way of thinking suddenly starts seeping back in. It finds, it finds a gap in the wall and it begins to come back in. John 13, verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and he would return to God. So let's get this part clear. He's in to- Jesus is in total authority and he knows it. He has all resources and he knows it. All status for all eternity. He has it and he knows it. Now, nobody else on earth at this time knows it, but Jesus knows it. Verse 4 of John 13. So he got up from the table. He took off his robe. He wrapped a towel around his waist. He poured water into a basin. And then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand now, Peter, what I'm doing, but someday you will. In other words, I'm showing you, Peter, a new path for your feet. It's a place to which I'm leading you. But you don't understand it yet because, for crying out loud, you're still arguing with your brothers about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. But I'm showing you the pathway to power. I'm showing you pathway to true greatness in the kingdom of God. You don't understand it now, but there is coming a day, Peter, when you will understand it. And of course, we see and we know the response in verse 8 from Peter. No, 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 no. Peter protested, you will never, ever wash my feet. Absolutely not. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. In other words, listen. In other words, if you don't embrace this moment, if you don't fully take this in, Peter, you will never know the fullness of what I have for you. You can claim to walk with me, but you won't be walking with me. You can claim to have power, but you won't have the power. If you're not going to embrace this, this way of thinking, because Peter power is not found where you think it is. It's found in what I'm demonstrating right now in front of you as the Son of God, as the one who has all authority, as the one who has universal and forever status, as the one who controls all wealth, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. I am now showing you the fullness of what I have for you. What's Peter going to say to that? (laughs) Verse 9, Simon Peter exclaimed, then wash my hands, my head as well, Lord, not just my feet. And then this reply comes from Jesus. Hmm. A person who has bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. Now, clearly, 
this statement from Jesus, another thing that's perplexing, it's a strange verse for us. If you take it at its surface value, church, it could almost imply that in order to be saved, you need only to have your feet clean. Some people have actually tried to interpret it that way, but that is a misinterpretation in my opinion. You see, from that moment when mankind sinned in the Garden of Eden, let's, let's remember, let's talk about what was that sin? What was the specifics? It's more than eating the apple. What, what was that sin? The sin which the devil planted in the human race, in your heart, in my heart, in every human being that's ever been born, is that in yourself you can be as God. That was the sin. You can have wealth, you can have power, you can have status, you can be as God, you can determine your own course, you can determine your own destiny, you can travel the entire circumference of this globe, and that is exactly what humankind has done for thousands of years, searching for wealth, searching for power, searching for status, because isn't that what the world is all about? Isn't that what the culture raises us and trains us and teaches us to do and to be? Isn't that what our own state of Texas can even be about? How many people come to the great state of Texas just to serve? Not a lot. Not a lot. Most everyone here is here to be served. Most everyone is here to get their slice of the socioeconomic pie. Most everyone seems to be here to push somebody else out of the way so that they can climb a little higher on the ladder. Jesus said, for he who has bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet. What's he saying? Jesus was saying, I'm going to show you another path for your feet, and I'm going to take you on a clean path because the pathway of this world is dirty. The pathway of this world leads us nowhere It just goes in this endless circle where people are never satisfied. You can push your way to the top if you want. You can get a public office if you want. You can get preeminence in the church if that's what you strive for. But Jesus said, for he who has bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And disciples, you disciples are clean, but not all of you. Let me tell you. It's an amazing thought, and it goes deep within my soul today when you think about it. I have to ask myself, God, where are my feet walking? I wonder if I preach this on Sunday morning, if anybody in the congregation is going to ask that same question. Where am I? Am I a servant? Have I allowed the spirit of the age to convince me of something other than what Scripture says I'm to be? and to accept an entirely different paradigm for living? Am I a servant? You know, it's easy to declare yourself as one, especially if you know the truth of it, but declaring it, church, and living it are two different things. And it requires an an examination of the heart by the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, we'll all declare ourselves righteous if it's just you and me doing our self-examination. So, verse 12 of John 13, after washing their feet, He put on his robe again and sat down and asked, do you understand what I was doing? Okay. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, because 
That's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. You see what he's saying here? I think he's essentially saying no more striving to be on the top. That needs to be in the past for you. Now, you've heard me share my little beatitude that I made up some time ago. I'm going to share it because it fits so perfect. Blessed is he who has nothing left to prove. Blessed is he who has nothing left to prove. I have lived the last 40 years around some of the finest musicians on the planet. I've conducted orchestras I did not deserve to, stand, to be standing in front of. It's what I've done in addition to being your music pastor here for 33 years until 10 years ago. I've watched every singer. I've watched every musician. I've watched the best of the best, what we put in the world-class category. People whose names you see on the back of lots of, we used to call them records, it was this round thing that. <laughs> and I watched the ones who walked into the studio who had nothing left to prove. They were usually the best ones. And I watched the others who were real serious wannabes and they were still trying to prove everything. And that's why one day I went back to my hotel room in Nashville and I sat down and I thought, wow. Because I saw two examples in that one day of the extreme of both of those. I said, Lord, I don't want to be that. Here, here's my musicianship. Take it. I'm not holding it like this. I hold it like this. Blessed is he who has nothing left to prove. Okay, I'm going to dig a little deeper. I look at some family situations now as a pastor. I, I'm taken into um, confidence, and I see behind the doors of things that are taking place in many families. And I often see a member of that family who appears to be trying so hard to prove something, not always sure what, their worth, their value, and that can, they're trying to prove that could cause all kinds of behaviors, challenging behaviors. And sometimes, I haven't said it, I hope I never do, but I'm sure tempted to, sometimes I think, you know, maybe this family tension could be smoothed out. If we would just all go ahead and declare you the winner, you won, you won. Let's give you your trophy now. You got it. You win. You're the smartest. You're the prettiest. You're the best looking. You're the one everybody thinks is cool. Give them the trophy. Hurry, quick. We know that you're the one that's got it all together. You win. Can we just declare that now? And now that we have that off the table, and you've got your trophy that you can do whatever you want to do with, could we just eliminate all the striving that you're doing to prove it? And all the stuff you're causing in the family to prove it? Could everybody just breathe for a second? What if we just relieved you completely from having to prove it? 
There's no more need for that. We've declared you the winner. We've applauded. We'll celebrate. Let's have a happy dance. Let's give you this big trophy. Let's do all that. And so because the truth is, if we can get that out of the way, maybe that's the path that Jesus is designing on our feet. So now we can just serve each other as Jesus would instead of trying to prove who we are. Let's just wash each other's feet. Bethesda, if you want to know the power of God, it is found in a basin and a towel. Just muse on that a moment. If you want to know the power of God, you want to know where to find it? I can tell you. It's found in a basin. I told you you wouldn't like this. It's found in a basin and a towel. It's found in saying, hey, how can I help you? Hey, my brother, you look, how can I help you? I really want to serve you. How can I serve you? What can I do for you? We used to call it, when I first became your pastor 10 years ago, I preached a sermon that was kind of a, toward the beginning on being a reacher. Anybody remember that? What is to be a reacher? Because I began observing in my own life a reach, everybody has a different reach quotient. The minute you meet them, you can tell if they're, if, if they're kind of into themselves and they would really rather not meet you. And then there's those who everything about them, it's like they push everything aside about them. Hey, how are you? I'm interested in you. I'm interested in your. They just reach, reach, reach to people. How can I serve you? Verse 15. I've given you an example to follow. Jesus said, so do as I have done. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, verse 17 says, God will bless you for doing them. I am not saying these things to all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but this fulfills the scripture that says, the one who eats my food has turned against me. All right, we got to bring him into this. In other words, Jesus washed the feet of Judas. You know that. But Judas wanted nothing to do, nothing to do with the lesson that was being taught him. Now, I'm guessing he figured out how to fake it. But what he wanted was power. We know he wanted money because he was a thief. We know that. And status. That's what had crept into the heart of Judas. I want power, I want money, I want status. And when he couldn't get it through the Son of God, which is what he thought he was going to get, that was the Son of God that was before him, he then chose to betray him and get it the way he thought it could be done. He would be, um, we would say he lifted up his heel against the Son of God. And I, uh, I have to ask, how many people today will lift up their heel? What I'm saying is, They will yield, um, in a sense, in the moment. It's entirely possible that that Judas allowed Jesus to wash his feet, but in reality, he was lifting up his heel against Christ and saying, "Uh, I suppose you can do this if you feel you need to. You can do this if you want, but Jesus, I'm not going this way. Uh Uh-uh, not doing it. I'm not going to be a servant to anybody. I'm going to be a Lord 
and I'm going to be an authority. People are going to know my name. I'm going to be famous, and I'm going to have power. I'm going to have status, and I'm going to have authority. And honestly, Jesus, when I look at you washing feet, you know what we're facing here. Are you trying to tell us you believe this is the way to win the war? Are you trying to tell us this is the way? Come on. This is the way to overthrow the dominance of Rome? Do you not get it, Jesus? Do you not understand that we're now in the big leagues here? It's, it's a whole lot bigger than that. Are you that naive? I mean, honestly, you've got to be crazy. There's no way we're going to win with this towel and a basin. And you're telling us that you want us to come out of this relationship with you and you want us to be servants. Jesus, that's not going to cut it. Somebody's got to rise up and be preeminent. Someone's got to be strong. And I have no doubt that in the heart of Judas, he felt, and I'm the one to do it. I'm going to show you how this is supposed to be done. I'm going to rise up. I'm going to be the voice. You wash feet if you want to, Jesus, not me. I'm, I'm not going in this pathway. I have another view of greatness than what you're setting before me. Allow me, church, to restate this idea as projected from the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 20. But Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, Jesus said, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. Let me pause that to say, occasionally someone might come and say, I'm ready to lead this, I'm ready to lead that. And Pastor Marty's the one who's reminded me, you know, maybe we should see first how good of a servant they can be for some period of time before we put them in position of leadership. Leadership is a good thing to be desired in a healthy way. But you want to know how the church needs to recognize your ability to lead? It's how good a follower you are and how good a servant you are. Are you all still there this morning? Do you still love your pastor this morning? I can't tell by looking at you, sorry. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must, be your, must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. The way of the cross is indeed foolishness to those who are perishing. The way of the cross is indeed foolishness to a religious age that has taught the people that the way to change the culture is through wealth, status, and power. But Jesus taught that the way to greatness, the way to win the victory is by being the least of these. Can I get an amen to that? See, when you say amen every few couple of minutes, it allows me to breathe. That's a great thing. So I'm going to close with this. That doesn't mean I'm through. I just say that to, you know, let you feel good for a second. Like all of you who were in Bethesda Church under the leadership of Pastor Des Evans, he taught us many, many things. And more often than not, it took, us, it took me a while to get it or to even try to understand. One such philosophy that he taught 
those of us in ministry particularly, was what he referred to as the inverted pyramid. The inverted pyramid. I didn't like it the first time he said it. I didn't like it the last time he said it. And I didn't like it one time in between. But I knew he was right. It took me a while to figure out he was right. Des said a lot of things that it took me a while to figure out he was right. But all of them come out to be he was right. Now, I remember after he introduced this idea to those of us on staff at that time, we serve from the bottom. Does this not fall right in line with the scripture I've read to you today? We serve from the bottom. Now, most leaders I know want this to be turned around the other way and serve from the top. I made a stupid mistake. I was stuck on stupid this day. I was at a pastor's conference, and somebody sitting at a table with me said, so, what's going on at Bethesda these days? Well, Pastor Des has just been sharing with us that those in leadership, we need to understand the church is an inverted pyramid. I lost that guy's attention like that. He left in a heartbeat. <laughs> okay, great, and he went right on. I learned it's a great way to get rid of people you don't want to talk to, that's for sure. <laughs> this is not a popular subject with pastors. It's not. It's not a, a popular subject with anybody who sees themselves, they've worked hard to get to the top if you have this thing turn around the other way. But it is the principle that Jesus is showing us and putting a spotlight on for us today. It was never well received anytime I shared it. Once again, Des was right according to scripture. And yet it absolutely flies in the face of our human nature. But church, we must learn to serve others serve their needs. In my way of thinking, it's all a part of what we, the phrase we've been using around here a lot, protecting the unity. It's all a part of protecting the unity. It is the teaching of Jesus and it cannot be ignored in spite of the fact that it is completely counterintuitive to all of us. So where does this play out? Come on, Pastor Brent. I'm not gonna insult you by alliterating all of the, trying to draw out every circumstance for you because first of all, all of us are in different circumstances. You need to apply this word to your heart and to your life and to your situation. But I'm gonna mention a couple. <laughs> Where does this play out? In the home? Mm -hmm. I know it's much more desirable to sit in the king's chair or in the queen's chair I know that's much more desirable. There's a lot of positives to us. But we have to find ourselves in the servant's chair in the home. Oh, listen to that rousing amen. Isn't that incredible? Just knocking me over. There's a king's chair in your house. There's a queen's chair in your house. But over in the corner, there's a servant's chair. You need to find it and sit in it. Plays out there, plays out at work. So many people, even who profess Christ, are jostling and pushing and slandering and murmuring and whispering and trying to work their way through the system to get to the top. It's what 
That's what the world's taught you to do. Instead of just looking at somebody who's struggling beside them and saying, instead of me spending all my time climbing here, hey, my brother, how can I help you today? I know it's going to take some time. That's okay. But I want, to, I, want to, I want to help you today. Tell me how I can do that, my sister. So easily forgetting that the journey to the top is in looking for someone beside you who's struggling. That's the journey to the top. How does it play out in the community? Well, we might join people with the placards and we might start shouting. We might even get our own bullhorn. We might condemn everybody for not thinking or believing like we do. But how many servants do we have left in the community? Got loud voices, plenty of those. But how many servants do we have left in our community? How many people truly know where the power of God is found? So... How does this play out in the church? There's no shortage of people trying to find the preeminence in the church too, certainly the church at large. There's no doubt about that. And then when they get it, they tend to hang on to it like it's a bar of gold in their hands. But in the church today, how many are willing to be servants? How many are willing to do something besides just walk in and out of here from 10.30 till whatever time Dan finally finishes. When are you willing to roll up your sleeves and find somebody else to serve, something else to serve? It seems to me that if we're completely honest, probably none of us really know if we're a servant or not. If you're like me, we all probably say, well, yeah, yeah. If you really want to know, ask your spouse if you're a servant. No, don't do that. You'll probably get an honest answer. Or your kids. Well, we think we know. I think I know my heart. Of course, Scripture tells me I don't. We think we know our heart, but we don't. Only God knows. And that is why on this day, with the challenge I've had, even in communicating this message to you today, I'm asking the Lord Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit to examine my heart. And I'm asking him, as Peter did, Lord, wash my feet wash my feet. And if there's some filthy thinking of this world that has somehow found its way into my spirit or my heart, wash my feet. Wash my feet. Change my course. Change the course of my path, the direction of my feet. Make it desirable in my heart, desirable in my heart to be a servant. And like Peter, I feel like I'm saying, Lord, not only wash my feet, but my head, my hands, all of me. Because God, I recognize I can't walk in this path unless you do it through me. But I do know this, whoever does it will be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And the church said, let's stand, would you please?